Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the well, at this point, you're expecting Ron to say good evening, everybody, and welcome to Ghost Chronicles International. I am your host, New England's own Van Helsing, except he's not. Well, he is, but he's not here because we don't know where he is. He's in the chat room, but he's not on Skype. So, in the absence of the co-host, of the host, you've just got me, the co-host, the gold standard um, as Ron would describe on the other side of the pond in the land of the red dragon, yeah, 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 yeah. And of course, thrown into the deep end uh, with no host, no guest, no idea of what's happening. So a pretty normal Ghost Chronicles International. What a way to celebrate your birthday. And yes, today is my birthday. So I'd much rather be elsewhere as well. Looks like he's off celebrating on my behalf. I've got no idea what to talk about. Except I could, while we wait for Ron to join us, I could promote the guidelines uh, for spontaneous case investigators, which I think is a worthwhile cause, because it's something that I think we need in the uh, world of the ghost hunting community, the broader ghost hunting community. There have been many groups who, down the years, have called for standards and regulation, um, and that this ghost hunting activity should be regulated it, it it they pointed at all of the different problems sadly investigators have been killed investigators have broken into buildings there have been contentious issues surrounding all manner of investigations and this has led to numerous calls for some form of regulation to be applied both sides of the atlantic because that was never going to happen because People are very set in their ways. You know, people believe passionately in what they do and why they're doing it and the methods that they use. They believe that their methods are the correct methods. So regulation wasn't going to help. And it was also very apparent that the large organizations, the organizations that we used to turn to for guidance and for leadership, the Society for Psychical Research, the American Society for Psychical Research, uh, the Parapsychological Association um, and others uh, here in the UK, the Association for the Scientific Study of Anomalous Phenomena, all, have, along with academic parapsychology, have tended to distance themselves from the ghost hunting community. They've put clear blue water between what we do, what they do. Um, they, they've never reached out. They've never offered any form of support or guidance and yet they have in the case of the SPR um, 150 years and well, almost 150 years uh, of uh, study leadership uh, in this field and they've they, down the years they've made some remarkable discoveries and they've investigated some remarkable cases notwithstanding the, the most notorious of all being of course the Enfield, the Enfield poltergeist um, members of the SPR were involved um, at Borley Rectory. And in fact, they, the Society for Psychical Research carried out 
or members of the Society of Psychical Research, carried out the world's first haunted house investigation uh, in the 1890s. But where are they today? Where were they? Uh, when the television shows started uh, and the portrayal of ghost investigation as an activity, as a pursuit, as a, a thing that every day ghost investigators people could do. You know, the Joe off the street. Oh, I'm being told that Ron is on via phone, so that could be interesting. Right. So, uh, well, well, because you sound different on the phone. Anyway, I was just—I'll just finish just saying what I was saying. Sprouting off as usual. Well, as I say, I was thrown in the deep end, um, so I was just making it up as I go along. Planning, planning, planning. And I was anyway. saying that we haven't had any leadership, but now we have. We finally. Um, they have come to their senses and issued a set of guidance notes. Oh, is this Bedwicks? Sorry? Is this the uh, Bedwicks? No idea what you're talking about. Yeah, the European Union, leaving the European Union. Oh, no, that's, that just collapsed just before we came on air. And oh. that was uh, we live in a unique democracy where the politicians ignore what they're told uh, at the at the ballot box so they 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 have they vote to, to have a referendum then we have the referendum we vote to tell them what to do and then they ignore us and then they all fall out so it's all pretty normal oh, and then tomorrow they're going to have a vote of no confidence in the government okay. so here we are so, so anyways uh, today's a special look day for the pound and the dollar there's a, a gentleman who now is is one of the leading uh, members in his field, and uh, it's a special day for him. And I'd like to give him a wish of a big happy birthday to Drew Brees, the quarterback of the New Orleans Saints. Happy birthday, Excellent. Drew. Excellent. It's also Stevie Wonder's birthday. Yes. No, not Stevie Wonder, um, Martin Luther King's birthday. Stevie Parsons' birthday. I said that at the start of the show. I don't care. <laughs> anyway, happy birthday. Is... But Thank today you. is also uh, the anniversary of a of. Uh, really neat event here in the U.S. I don't know if you are aware of it in uh, uh, the is U.K., this but of, it's the anniversary of the Great to... Boston Molasses Flood of 1919. Yeah, I believe that a lot of people came to a sticky end. Yes, they did, and that's probably never been said before. No, I'm uh, sure it hasn't. January 15th. So what, what is this molasses celebration? I'm going to tell you about it. On January 15th, 1999, around 2.30 p.m., a Boston policeman, Frank McManus, because they're all Irish, uh, was at a car box reporting to headquarters when he heard a large scraping and grounding sign. Pausing to figure out the source, he suddenly discovered... Uh, what it was. McManus managed to make out to the dispatchers and all available rescue vehicles and personnel immediately. There's a wave of molasses coming down Commercial Street. And that's the way it started. 2.3 million gallons of molasses moving 35 miles an hour and 25 feet high and 160 feet wide was rushing down the city street. And what had happened was a 50-foot uh, steel tank holding the molasses ruptured, and uh, that's basically...
basically what? Uh, we lost a, a ton of people. I believe it was 21 uh, that were killed and many others injured. And uh, it was it was pretty... pretty I, would say, I mean, That must be pretty, because for molasses to be runny, it's got to be hot. Yes, it was heated. It was used in so uh, the making worse. of rum. It was imported, and they had a, uh, a special tank built. Uh, unfortunately, they, they did a little bit of uh, shoddy construction, as you might say. And, uh, yeah, there you go. When the tank broke, there was no outrunning it. Initially, wave came in and just about pulverized everything in its way. People's bones were crushed. Their bodies, uh, you know, buildings were thrown, wrecked, uh, cars were thrown around. Many uh, survivors had broken backs and fractured skulls. How much molasses can a 50-foot-high tank hold? That sounds like an extraordinary amount. Uh, I told you it was 2.3 million. Wow. 2.3 million I, gallons, there, not, not metric. Is there, in Boston today, is there any um, plaque commemorating it, or, or have they just moved on? Yes, there is. I'm glad you mentioned that. They, they do have one. And today on the anniversary, what they did is there's a park right now where the uh, tank was. And they used uh, ground-penetrating uh, radar. And uh, they outlined the base of the, the uh, tank where it stood. And they lined people all in a circle around the outskirts of the thing. And they also mentioned each uh, of the names of the people that were uh, killed during this uh, catastrophe yeah it's not something i've ever heard of until you posted it earlier today on social media it's it's not something um i was aware of it's not something we 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 learned about but then i guess that would be a a you know a very much a boston new england uh thing that you would want to remember it was a it's mess. Not, I mean, it really, the, yeah, not only I mean, it, 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 the it, initial it, action, but cleaning up afterwards because it how got long did everywhere. That take? And, how and long people did smelled it for years and years afterwards Well, in the summer. Yeah, I imagine. Because, I mean, you'll clean up the, the what you can see, but that, you know, if it's a liquid, it's going to seep, isn't it? And I know... It's it's kind of unrelated, but I know, I know when um, they've closed down oil refineries in the UK, um, there is still oil residues in the ground for 50, 60, 70 years afterwards, mm-hmm. um, which which pollute the ground. And, you know, we have to have specialist crews come in before the land can be reused in any way. But this was right in the centre of, so whereabouts in, in Boston was it? Because uh, I believe it's I not there, I'm sure. It's Commercial Street, I'm not sure the exactly. So is that, is, are we talking about the centre? Yeah, in the centre of town, yeah. Wow, any ghosts? I'm sure there is. But you know, Steve, you know, Steve, you had your own disaster. And of course, I'm talking about the, what, the 19, I mean, 1840, what's that? <laughs> what's that? The one that just happened in Parliament. Yeah, I know. But uh, I'm talking about the 1814 uh, Great Bear Flood. The Great on, what? Uh, what? The Great what? Bear Flood. I've never heard of that. Well, let me refresh your memory. Please on do. Monday, the 17th, October 1814, a terrible disaster claimed the lives of eight people 
in the uh, St. Giles, uh, London. Where is, you know where that is? Yeah. Okay. A bazaar, a bazaar, a bazaar, industrial accident resulted in a tsunami, a uh, uh, wave tsunami. of uh, beer uh, onto That's the street. That's not a disaster. That's a Saturday night out in Britain. <laughs> On uh, Tottenham Court Road. Any idea what that is? I do know Tottenham Court Road well. I've walked it many times. Okay. Well, the Horseshoe Brewery stood at the corner of Great Russell Street and Toten Court yeah. Road. In 1810, the brewery, Mo M-E-U-X and Company, uh, had a 22-foot-high wooden formation tank installed in the premise. It was held together by massive rings uh, around the, the vat, which held over 35,000 barrels, not gallons, barrels of brown port ale. On uh, the afternoon of October 17, 1814, one of the rings around the tank snapped, and an hour later, the whole tank ruptured, releasing the hot fermenting ale with such force that the uh, brick walls of the brewery collapsed, and the forest also blasted open up several more vats containing, uh, you know, more of the beer, more than 30 to no, 320,000 gallons of beer was released into the area. Uh, this was, uh, yeah, this was didn't that. I uh, say... didn't know about that, but. Go ahead. I had never heard of that, but to say, I mean, I know the area. I actually know Tottenham Court Road, Great Russell Street quite well. Um, in fact, I've stayed in a hotel uh, at the junction of the two. Uh, I, it, I don't believe it's commemorated. Uh, well, it wasn't when I visited, but Britain is in a process of sticking blue plaques, which commemorates stuff on, on almost everything. So there may be a blue plaque that... So uh, anyway, this was... Uh, You're going to love the rest of this. You really will. Go on. Uh, Sounds like a so, comedy. This is, oh, this is so British. Uh, this was uh, St. Giles <laughs> Rookery, which was a densely populated slum in, of cheap housing and tenements inhabited by poor people that destitute... It isn't now. It isn't prostitute now. Prostitute <laughs> and criminals. Uh, it isn't now. God, no, it's one of the richest parts of London. Isn't that funny? The flood reached uh, George Street and New Street within minutes, swamping them with a tide of alcohol. The 15-foot <laughs> the fifteen foot high wave of beer and debris inundated basements and two houses causes them to collapse. In one house, Mary Banfield and her daughter, Hannah, were taking tea, uh, when they were hit by the flood and killed in the basement of another house, an Irish wake was being held. <laughs> I guess they prayed they got what they wanted. Uh, it was being held for a two-year-old boy who died the previous day. Four uh, mourners, mourners were all killed. The wave also took out the wall of uh, Tavistock Arms Pub, uh, trapping the barmaid, Eleanor Cooper in the rubble, and all eight people were killed. Three brewery workers who were rescued from waist high flood water. Uh, but wait a minute, it gets better. Wait, you're going to love this. <laughs> Here comes the good part. The party lasted for three months. <laughs> Here it comes. All the free beer led to hundreds of people scooping up the liquor in whatever containers they could find. Some yep. just reported it drinking it, <laughs> leading to reports uh, of the death of a ninth victim who uh, <laughs> died nine days later succumbing to alcohol poisoning. <laughs> yeah, you see, the British are very good at making the best of a bad job. Oh, it even gets better. Some relatives... Really? 
Oh, yeah, some relatives exhibited the corpses of the victims for money. In one of the houses, a macabre exhibition resulted in the collapse of the floorboards under the weight of all the visitors and plunged them all into waist-high beer-flooded cellar. The stench of beer persisted for months. I'm not surprised, and I I really don't think that um, that sounds too implausible. (laughs) It isn't. It's true. Exactly. This, this, I mean, this comes this from historic I mean, uh, UK. We are never going to turn down, and on which sensible nation would turn down the offer of free alcohol? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, we can talk about other disasters that have led to uh, party on mode. Um, really? I mean, in 1941, um, one of the Scottish islands in the Hebrides, uh, Eric's, Eriskay, I think it was, Eriksay, Eriskay, I can't remember. Uh, a cargo ship ran aground carrying 28,000 cases of malt whiskey destined oh. for America. Um, and uh, uh, most of it washed ashore on the island. You can imagine what happened next. The British government did try to uh, remedy the situation, and a, uh, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs officers were duly dispatched to try and... Um, collect what they could but even today there are still families um with some of the stash of whiskey really drunk well i mean you think about i mean 20 uh 28,000 cases there's 12 bottles in a case that's a lot of malt whiskey and they they didn't recover very much of it mm-hmm. um i mean it was it was a tragedy for those on board the the boat, but I presume they were given a great send-off um, by those who were, at the, you know, at the receiving end of the bounty. But uh, I, you know, I mean, it's a peculiarity of the British, I think, to laugh at tragedy. You know, we look at um, we look at other nations, like particularly we look at America, because America tends to wear their hearts on their sleeves way more than the Brits do. Um, we, you know, we we have. We have disasters, and there have been numerous ones uh, in recent and in in past times. And it's not long before, and there's been studies into this peculiarity of the British psyche um, that look at this dark, slightly sardonic, sarcastic sense of humour that the British have. Uh, the fact that they will make a joke about, and it, it's often the case that when there is a national disaster. Uh, that very shortly afterwards, there are jokes made about it. And one example was um, during the 1980s, I think it was, I might be wrong, there was an oil rig disaster in the North Sea and great loss of life, and it was an enormous tragedy. And there had been films and uh, documentaries about it. It was called Piper Alpha. Uh, And it was akin to the Gulf of Mexico, uh, Exxon... Uh, no, what was it? The BP platform on the in the Gulf of Mexico, but as I say there was a huge loss of life, and within 24 hours there were black jokes circulating widely um, about the. I mean, one of them I recall from the time was "What has three legs and goes woof," and the answer was Piper Alpha. Uh, okay. Yeah, exactly, uh, because this this oil production platform literally just blew up. Um, now that is, and people find that offensive. Um, you know, people, 
and a lot of the modern generation, I guess, would find that offensive. But I think that's a peculiarity. Yeah, the modern of... generation finds everything. Offensive. Well, that's true. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the millennial snowflakes. Um, but, you know, a peculiarity of the British way um, of dealing with tragedy is, is by making jokes about it. That doesn't downplay the tragedy. Um, I mean, there were jokes about the Titanic. There were jokes about uh, the Blitz. There were jokes about uh, 7-7, 9-11. Um, they're not meant in a, in a way that, that is offensive, although a lot of people will take offence. They are meant as a way of dealing with the, the, the tragedy. I mean, I said at the start of the show about the sticky end to the people with molasses. That might just be a peculiarity of the British way of dealing with stuff, that we will always look for that nub of humour in the tragedy. Um, uh, America is is very different, uh, and this was this was brought to the fore. And the reason I raise this is because it, it, it's kind of linked to uh, psychology and and ultimately through to the study of the paranormal, because it's how we deal with grieving, how we deal with tragedy, how we deal with despair and death, and all these sort of uh, things that go go with it. Um, when Princess Di died there was a very peculiar thing happened in Britain. Um, after she, she, after the accident in Paris and the announcement of her death, uh, Britain did something it's never done before, uh, which was this outpouring of grief, uh, this weird outpouring of grief, so weird that many commentators, many people were shocked by it. Uh, the fact that all of these people wanted to go to Kensington Palace or wanting to go to Buckingham Palace and lay flowers. Um, and they couldn't understand the Queen's lack of a response or seeming lack of response because her, she was in Balmoral at the time with the, with the two young princes. And she was a grandmother and she naturally um, wanted to put them first and didn't want to expose them to anything. And made sure that the family drew together and protected the boys. And she was condemned for it. The nation needs you. Where are you? Uh, there were calls for her to abdicate. Um, in amongst all of this, this uh, ripping of hair and beating of chests of, of grief. And, and there were interviews at the time, and it, it, it was very apparent that a lot of people were there because everybody else was. And it was like a domino effect. A couple of people had left flowers and more flowers and more flowers and then more tears and more flowers and more tears. And it became a, a tidal wave of grief. So. Yeah, that's, I guess, it's, yeah, I understand the whole narrative, I guess. You know, it was... But, but it, you know, you know, Steve, it's, it's really British. weird because growing up, and I don't know if it's like for you uh, in the UK, but growing up, whatever came our way, uh, as far as tragedy, whatever in the, in the family and in, in the nation, we just, you know, we dealt with it. We sucked it up and we dealt with it. And nowadays, if anything happens, there's like 10,000 grief counselors dealing with people. It's just like we can't deal with it anymore uh, we've well, really become you know you're you're absolutely right we've changed as a as a i mean first of all there are two things that i've noticed quite recently um one uh, every day i see people living out their their personal tragedies 
and tra traumas on social media in a way that I it, it, it's completely alien to me. Um, you know, uh, they every every little disaster in their life or big disaster in their life, they feel obliged to drag or share with you know, drag onto social media and share with everybody else in a way that I never would do um, and haven't seen people doing since before the advent of, of social media you you kept your you know you kept your family business inside the family you didn't uh, your dirty laundry exactly. in public um but I now think it, it made seems it stronger like, for us to, we you know we we became stronger for it yeah i mean nowadays you see people you know they have health issues they have cancer they have uh, you know uh, surgery every you know we get a blow by blow account uh, and updates of you know every step in their progress for good or bad and people feel obliged to click like people feel obliged to put these mock words you know like hugs, hugs and sending love and light and and money you know and money and when there's a national disaster people salve their conscience by clicking like and sharing it i i, I you know it's it's so the, there's that aspect of living our lives in under the spotlight, a self-imposed spotlight of social media. Exactly. Um, which isn't isn't very British, but is is becoming more British. It certainly isn't British in the sense I was, you know, you you got on and dealt with it. Exactly. You know, the, the, the blitz spirit more more more. You didn't moan about your lot. You just got on and dealt with what you would had to be done. Um, and you see that very much in in the older generations, my parents' generation in particular. You know, I mean, 24 hours ago, um, I was told of um, that a, a, a family, a, a, a close family, a close favourite aunt of mine had died um, wow. yesterday. Now, I was I was what 10 minutes from going on to do the West Files and. There was never any. There was never any yeah, possibility of me, you know, sort of. Oh well, I'm not. I'm, I'm too grief stricken. I'm not going to do it. You just keep going. You just keep right. doing stuff. But now, you know, reading on social media today, um, you know, yeah, oh yeah, well, I went to see the doctor today, and he's told me that you know I've got to keep taking the medication, and I'm taking it little by little, stage by stage, and you follow people's progress through every single uh, turn, every single uh, you know sort of bit of good news, bit of bad news, and people feel obliged to salve their consciences or feel obliged to show their support and friendship by this. Oh, I can just click a button and click like, or put a smiley, or a hug. It's a, but isn't it kind of like you're it's almost so forced to do that? It's like I don't want to yeah. be so unsympathetic. I've got to click yeah. like or click. Uh, yeah, thing. because you feel obliged to join in, because otherwise people might judge you. Well, judging by our producer, we got to take a break. Okay. So, anyways, I'll you're click, listening to. I'll click to... like to that. <laughs> Okay, there you go. You're listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Steve Parson, the birthday boy, and Ron Kolick right here on Tojanet and Pararex Radio. We'll be right back after the following messages. Welcome to Tojanet. Radio with a cutting edge. Do you have a paranormal event? 
book or something else you want people to know about? Then why not advertise it on Ghost Chronicles Radio? With over 150,000 downloads a month, get your message out to an audience that's interested in the subject. We have a plan at a cost that fits your needs. For more information, contact Ron Kolick at anyghostproject at comcast.net or call 978-455-6678. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly kooky, the Parax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parax family. They're strange. Deranged. Unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew. It's time to rendezvous. As we give awards to the Parax family. Welcome back to part two of Ghost Chronicles International and normal service has been resumed. We found the host. Maybe. He was hiding hiding in his cold storm uh, cellar. Yes, I should be. But we flushed him. But we flushed him out. Looking for likes. Anyways, uh, there are some (laughs) mysteries. Hey, while we were were in the break, um, I was having a look at disasters um, because that seemed to be the theme for tonight. Given that... uh, that neither neither the UK or the USA has a functioning government at the moment, uh, for different reasons. Um, actually, you know, for the same reason, basically, we both want out of our next door neighbours, don't we? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> you want to build a wall, and we want to get get out of the uh, marriage. Mm. Um, but I've come up with this one. Um, I mean, it was it struck me almost immediately in the list of the sort of uh, top disasters um, from Six Flags. Uh, theme park in New Jersey, uh, and it was it took place in 1978. Uh, 70, mm-hmm. No, hang on, 84, at the haunted castle attraction. Ooh. Exactly. On May the 11th, 1984, a fire destroyed the haunted castle attraction at Six Flags, uh, trapping and killing eight, eight teenaged visitors. Um, mm. uh, how, many, just, how many teenagers must die? Uh, tri- started at 6.35 on a Friday evening of May 11th, 1984, fanned by the outside air conditioners that continued to push air through, up through the floor vents. It spread rapidly due to the flammable building materials that had been used oh, in yeah. construction. Uh, but, yeah, it was plastic. Uh, about 29 people were in the attraction, uh, 14 including four park employees escaped, seven were treated for smoke, eight teenagers from a group... Ah. Nine that entered were trapped and killed uh, due to smoke inhalation. One survivor, a uh, 15-year-old, was carried to safety. Oh. And, of course, the inevitable, because it was in America, um, lots of people were charged with lots of things. Oh, of course, we judge everybody. Uh, and but actually, I'm sure, that, I'm sure it, there was a vast number of lawsuits as well. It appears to have been made into a movie. Um, read it scrolling down. It says, an independent film titled Doorway to Hell. The mystery and controversy surrounding the fire. 
Uh, no. Surrounding the Fight was produced in 2003 um, and won the Best Research Award in 2004. It documents the fire, the investigation, and the trial. Questions it. Oh, so it's not a. Um, yeah. Um, the film says that two earlier visitors on the day of the fire reported finding the fire exit chain shut. Blah, 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 blah. Well, there you go. A haunted castle. Anyways, I did want I did want to switch gears a little bit because I, I wanted you to comment on some of these other mysteries that seem to uh, emanate from the UK. And I thought, you know, because I kind of dominated the beginning of the show with my Boston uh, molasses and BHL. So I'd, I'd like you to comment on these. Uh, maybe you don't know about them. You didn't know about the beer disaster. I didn't. <laughs> I nor did and many you... of the people that took part in it. <laughs> For many days afterwards. So there's there's a list of different items and uh i wanted you to comment if you could and if you don't know about them that's fine i'll just give the little synopsis and uh let it go with that and the first one is the highgate vampire are you aware of this i've heard of it i don't have a great deal of knowledge about it so it's best to pass on that one. Oh darn uh anyways i'll have to since i brought it up i have to uh yeah, you do. You have to tell them about it. Uh, ever since the 1960s, it, 1960, it is believed that a vampire stalks Highgate Cemetery. That's in London, right? It is. It's yep. one of the big old cemeteries in London. Our rumors stories and stories of a dark figure haunting the North London Cemetery began after a group of, guess what? Ghostbusters. I, I do know uh, a little teenagers. bit about the story. Yeah, well, I do know a little bit about it. it it's now... It's it that story, the Highgate Vampire. I do know. I can add a little bit after you finish your resume. Okay. Uh, it took an interest in in the occult and started uh, roaming the decrepit cemetery. One member of the group, David Farrant, spent the night in the cemetery on December twenty first. That must've been cold, nineteen sixty nine. And two months later, wrote to Hampstead and Highgate Express about a sighting of a strange, paranormal, shadowy gray figure. Soon people began to inform the local paper, claiming they too have witnessed this freakish supernatural natural activity, including a figure in a pawn of a tall man wearing a hat and a ghoul-like cyclist. Hmm. Uh, following reports, another man called uh, Sean, Man Sean Manchester stated he believed the King Vampire of the Undead is a medieval nobleman who had participated in black magic in Romania and was brought to England in a coffin in the 18th century. The Vampire King was apparently buried in the same grounds that later became known as Highgate Cemetery. So that's what this little uh, little blip says. What, what do you got? Well, it's not a got. It's just a, it's never out of um, it's never off the radar here in the UK. No. Um, now it's not something I've followed or been that interested in pursuing because which vampire. amazes me. You like all the weird stuff. I'm surprised. Yeah. Well, you've got to focus on certain things. I mean, I, I do like lots of things, but yeah, I know, I know you do. I mean, I've but collection this one, this one didn't. Yeah, well, this one didn't really um, tickle your fancy. No, I mean vampires. No, they don't really do it. Well, it's them, paranormal. Right? So it's, it, I mean, it is, but I mean, yeah. so is a lot of other things. But you, yeah, you know, we've talked about this before. Bishop, um, sort of jack of all trades, master of none. You know, I decided years ago I was going to follow one line of inquiry, 
but I can't get away from the Highgate Vampire um, because subsequent to the reports and the, the there have been different publications, uh, there has been a long-standing feud, uh, and that would be the best way of describing it a between a feud between Farrens mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, a guy calling himself Bishop Sean Manchester. Now this oh, guy, that's the guy, that's a dude. Yeah, this guy's a this guy. Yeah, this guy's a Catholic. He's not a bishop. He's not a priest. Um, mm-hmm. He's not really a bishop either. Yeah, um, self-appointed. But but he's written. I mean, he wrote a high, he, he wrote a number of books, and he claimed to have personally tracked the vampire to its lair, where he witnessed it turn into. I think it was a big spider. Oh, that's uh, nice. Shades of Lord of the Rings going on, uh, and he killed it with a stake through its heart and then set it on fire. Oh, good um, and he's been he's been in a sort of uh, a long-standing war of words, and it got it's got very heated at times. Really, uh, between him and uh, him and uh, Farron's and others, because inevitably this swirl of words, this vortex of um, sort of feuding between the two, they drag everybody in on their own, you know, different oh, people and. And we can't get rid of it. You know, I, I don't think a month goes by on Facebook without, without I see some reference to really uh, the Highgate Vampire. And now I don't know almost anything about the original, or, you know, story and what took place and who saw what and where. And frankly, as I said at the start, I don't really care. Right. Um, but it's something that does, you know, you, you do inevitably start to learn a little bit about it. Well, learn more about the feud. And because you want to find out about the protagonists in the feud, you know, mm-hmm. who said what to who and why. Uh, and these two have been at it hammer and tongs for years. They've they've complained, they've threatened legal action against one another. Um, you know, the. There have been all manner of name-calling. Bloggers have joined in on different sides. Um, you know, it, and the Highgate Vampire itself, of course, has run and run and run. Not, you know, because of the, the self-sustaining publicity storm that surrounded it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there have been numerous books, each of which claims to um, document the true account and present one side or the other story. Uh, different people have come in um, with their views, their opinions. It's a bit like actually Borley in many ways, you know, because we had um, Canon Fidian Adams uh, writing to Harry Price, didn't we? With uh, well, I've read your first book, and this is what I think happened. Mm-hmm. And then we we ended up with the nun and the nun story um, being prominent. Uh, but yeah, I, I I I kind of do know a little bit about it, but more about the war of words that's followed. Um, it's just followed like that. every ghost and it's, group, huh? and it's still going on today. Hmm. Hasn't changed. Okay. So, that's, so that's the first one. All right, so let me have you comment another <laughs> one. This is called Bella in the Witch Elm. W Y C H is that how you say it in UK? Let's say Witch Elm. Witch Elm? Are you aware of this one? Nope. Four boys were poaching on Hadley Woods in Southbridge in the West Midlands on April 18th, 1943, when they came across a startling discovery. While in the woods, they chose to climb up an elm tree. 
but were shocked when they came across a woman's skull buried within the hollow of the tree. The boys, yeah, the boys went to the authorities, and uh, following further investigation, a tire skeleton was found with a hand missing that was found buried up the next tree. Hmm. People from the local area soon came forward to say they had heard uh, what sounded like a woman screaming in the woods for 18 months prior, but the woman was never identified. Uh, graffiti then began to appear around town saying, why put Bella in which elm? Uh, the message was uh, seen in 1999. It speculated the death was linked to black magic, but nobody uh, ever solved the mystery. So I, you never heard of that one, huh? Not that particular one. Um, mm. But, uh, I mean, I, the witch elm is is a tree. It's a native tree to Britain. Um, oh, okay. Now I get it. Okay, that makes sense. It's, no. The WYCH. It's just it's it's a species a species of elm tree, um, but actually, the elm tree itself is um, in fact it, it's you know it, it is a true native species as opposed to one of the others. I mean there are Dutch elms and there are all manner of other elm trees, but this is a particularly British one. Uh, and the elm itself um, is associated with death, and this mm-hmm. might go all the way back to the Druids. Um, or it could just be that when the tree, when the elm tree dies, the branches fall off quite suddenly without warning, and they use elm wood for coffins because it's quite a good wood to use for coffins. No, oh, really. And you know, I mean, we've both seen pictures. I'm, I'm sure we've all seen pictures of simulcra, you know, uh, shapes within tree stumps and tree uh, trunks that look like all manner of other things. Um, I don't know. I don't know that particular one. But there are many, well, in fact, there are not many elm trees left because we had a spate of Dutch elm disease and we wiped out most of our population of elms. Uh, they, uh, we don't have very many elms left now, although we're trying to re-import them. Um, but a tree, like, like um, uh, you know, trees have personality or they're given the personality. Uh, they're given, particularly within the Wicca community, um, you know, the tree-hugging community, as I like to call them sometimes, uh, the, you know, the fact that people see and, and that there are stories about trees. I mean, trees were always important in our history. I mean, before the Battle of Hastings, um, King Harold ordered his troops to assemble at a tree, a single tree, because you know, that tree was... Uh, they didn't have road signs. They didn't have junctions or, or DD uh, that were, people could meet. So they would meet at key landmarks. And trees often were either planted or uh, at the landmark or, or the location or became the landmark. And people would use them as meeting points, as assembly points, because they were prominent on the landscape. And they were something that people could see from afar. Um, and there are many, many uh, stories attached in folklore to trees. Mm-hmm. So it could—I don't know. I mean, I've not heard that particular one, but it doesn't sound very far, very far distant from its um, its association with melancholy, death, and uh, you know, sort of the occult side of things that that are linked to the elm tree. 
This is interesting because it seems that the BBC commissioned Queen Mary University of London. Are you aware with uh, familiar with them? I don't know. No, no, not not. I mean, we've got Queen Mary. It is uh, a risk and information management research group and school of electronic engineering and computer science. Uh, so they, what they did is they asked. Uh, here it is. Uh, the BBC asked uh, them to uh, statistically and probabilistically reason uh, to solve the case of using that to solve the case of uh, Bella of Witchelm. Okay. Well, and, I, well, you just said that that university, Queen Mary's or whatever. Uh, Queen which, Mary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you mentioned technology. Mm hmm. Well, why didn't the BBC just commission them to do the most blindingly obvious thing they could and put a ground penetrating radar against the tree to see if it did contain human remains? Oh, they have. Uh, they found the skeleton within the tree. Well, I, you know, I mean, uh, many years ago, in fact, there are lots of other churches, but I do recall uh, one church um, wherein is a sword that was from the English Civil War from the 1640s. Uh, because it was left in a tree. It was left in a hollow in a tree. And the tree grew around it and mm -hmm. encompassed it. And when the tree finally fell over and died, um, it, it, the sword was found again. And, mm -hmm. in fact, I saw quite recently uh, a photograph um, of... It's from North America. <clears throat> and it was of some child's toy. Uh, I think it was a bicycle that had been left against the tree, and the tree had finally grown around it. And so you have this bicycle, child's bicycle, like, seemingly inside the tree trunk. So, you know, if there had been a nefarious murder or disposal of a corpse by shoving it into a hollow in, a, in an elm tree, mm -hmm. then the tree would continue, to, presumably, to grow round and enmesh itself with, with, the, with the human remains, which, of course, would decompose just to a skeleton. Right. So that's it. Sounds entirely plausible. Yeah, this is happening on August twentieth, uh, two thousand fourteen. Yeah, and basically, basically what they they did is uh, they connected all unknown hypotheses and multiple related pieces of uncertain information, and uh, analyzed it for a probabilistic, probabilistic technique yeah. called Bayesian networks. Are you familiar with BAY? Yeah. It's, Pro, I, I understand prob prob probabilistic. Okay. Yeah. And, it just means uh, it's more likely than not. And they came out with a little model, of course. And uh, once all the knowledge was available about the case was entered into the model, uh, they formed a prior probability of assumptions following by posterior probabilities, which were determined. And this is what it determined, some of the things. 99% uh cause was the death uh, criminal criminal death 97% uh, that Beller was not British I don't know how they get that one <laughs> 93 that Bella was still alive when she was put into the tree uh, okay. 33% that Jack Maysop I don't know who that was involved in the death I'm not sure who that was and 25% that Bella was a spy and 16% that she was probably a prostitute oh there we are <clears throat> and and so, how, I wonder how much money they got for doing that. I because, don't know. Because, I mean, you could say that 
Uh, what was the first one? Ninety percent, ninety something percent that it was a crime. Well, you, you don't stick bodies in trees unless you want to hide the body. So that mm. makes it highly, highly likely, um, mm. highly probable that the you know the reason for the body being the tree was nefarious. Um, I don't think you need to. Um, How do they rocket. get the British thing? I don't know, but uh, not British. So that was interesting. Well, actually, you, you can find out a great deal from a skeleton as to where its origin is, and that's been done on many archaeological digs because they can tell from the composition, particularly with teeth, they can tell exactly which part of the United Kingdom or the world right. the person grew, lived and grew up and whether they migrated from one part to another. They can actually tell a lot, but even yeah. with the tissue samples and bone samples. Exactly. So if you've got the skeleton, presumably you've got the head, because the first thing they sound Yeah, that the was the first thing that was found. Yeah. So again, um, you know, why, why use prob probabilistic um, ideas when you've actually got... Fa um, hard evidence that you can analyze and study and say well actually you know we've we've looked at the dna and we've looked at the the chemical residues the elemental residues within the um remaining sort of, uh, skeleton and we can say that she was a female that this that she came from here and i mean you know if they look hard enough they, they find lots of um uh, causes of death, even from you know, uh, on skeletons, they can find evidence of disease. They can find evidence of trauma. Um, maybe they just weren't allowed to cut the tree down. No, they they actually got the the skeleton maybe. and uh, they, the maybe body was the body was turned down. over to Professor James Webster and Doctor John. Well, did you do Lund an autopsy on it then? The Doctor Professor. <laughs> James Webster and John Lund of the Midland Forensic Science Laboratory. So they there did autopsy. They concluded that she had been asphyxiated, and uh, the profile was that of a 35-year-old woman, just under five feet tall, with mousy brown hair, irregular incisions. That's the teeth you were talking about, and probably had given birth. Uh, they had quite a few missing persons, but they were unable to match any of them. So um, there we are. But there's more. Wait a minute. There's more. Uh, rumor. Uh, shh, all right. Let's skip the rumor thing. Uh, the <laughs> Yeah, I know. Well, you know, it's rumor is rumor. Uh, but anyways, it was concluded. Uh, uh, Anna. Anna of Calvary, whose real name is Una Mossop, came forward claiming to know that the murder victim was a Dutch woman who arrived in England illegally in 1941, and the perpetuator was uh, dead, the person who killed her. When police tracked down her, uh, she was married to Jack Massoff, well, that's where that name came from, who right. uh, confessed to being involved in the demise of the woman. He pointed the finger to the Dutch, a Dutchman called, who, uh, a Dutchman called Van Raal, who believed uh, it was a meant of punishment, and, but had not killed her. Uh, she thought that they were, oh, she thought she was a spy. Police uh, tried but failed to track down the person called Van Rapp. And Jack Mossop died in uh, 1942 in a mental hospital. No, that gives you a lot. Uh, there was little evidence in the file that police did uh, much on the case. Over the years, various people came forward, claimed to have information relevant to the case, and... Uh, no, they really don't. Anyways, the most revelant, uh, revelant was from a lady called Judith O'Donovan, who was Jack Mossop's cousin, 
And she claimed uh, it was known in the family that Jack had been involved in the death of the woman and that also that Jack was a traitor. The case was closed in 2005. So that closed that down with very little evidence other than just... I guess after time. Well, I mean, it, it took place in what was for us the height of the darkest days of World War Two, and it, I suppose the, the my first thoughts are um, that you know, people were very suspicious of foreigners. And no, that makes idea, sense, really. Yeah, the idea that somebody who couldn't speak English, you know, presumably she's Dutch, she would she would sound very Germanic, and that people would be very suspicious, um, and that could be used against her. You know, that could have been used by people that didn't like her or or it could have been a valuable asset for somebody who just wanted to do away with her. Um, I don't know. Intriguing. Yeah, intriguing stuff, though, isn't but, it? I, I mean, it's interesting, it's interesting that, um, you know, the, the BBC chose to go to uh, look at probabilities rather than reality because, you know, you've got the skeleton, you've got the person. And you well, can it's based find on, out... on some reality, right? Uh, well, is it? Hmm. I, I mean, guess. It, it, because I mean, they took yes, the information, they had a they had to process all the information they had to put make the probability model. Uh, That's what oh, it said in the article. Yeah, but on, I, I, you know me, right? I like to, I you like don't to, believe in probability. Um, probably not. Uh, I like to, <laughs> I like to it believe. I like to believe... Zinkum's razor there, isn't well, that kind of probability? Well, Occam's razor is the simplest... Yeah. The simplest um, is usually the most correct, but the simplest explanation in terms That's of people seeing ghosts is that, dead probability. People, is that people come back. The simplest explanation in terms of UFO experiences mm-hmm. is that aliens are visiting the planet, and we know that neither of those scenarios... Is satisfactory, so Occam's razor itself falls flat. I thought you were going to say neither one of them was true. That's interesting. <laughs> no, they don't satisfy. You know, all of, it might be the simpli- the most simplistic explanation. And yeah, least... we're running, we're running okay. short of time, and I, I want to just hit one more quick one. Oh God, another one. Uh, the myth of the hairy hands of Dartmoor. Do you know this? No, one? no, no. By the sound of it, I don't. Isn't England? Don't you live in the UK? Yeah. Okay, just curious. During the 1920s, there were a bout of severe car collisions on a stretch of road located in a desolate area of Dartmouth, Devon. Several cars crashed with lethal uh, results and uh, remained unexplained. Uh, the legend has it that a number of the survivors claimed that a pair of hairy hands taking hold of the steering wheel crashed the car into the ditch. An investigation yeah, I, I, I think I remember reading about it. At some investigation point. was launched to look into the road surface, uh, which caused uh, was suggested as the, a defect in the uh, the road surface. Yet locals uh, local versions say the story of the hands uh, are from an unnamed man who died in a road accident. Yeah, what makes right. the better story? The the locals say legend tells us that. Or the reality is that you know accidents happen. There was a, there's a famous haunted road in the UK called the Stocksbridge Bypass, and I, I've actually visited it on Vic. Oh, really? I'd spent time investigating it because it had a reputation, locals and legend, and there were all sorts mm. of stories about uh, 
about you know a phantom that would appear and it caused you know innumerable crashes and it was called you know uh, the, the 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 most dangerous road in britain uh, by those who purported to tell the, the legend and the folklore of, of the road. In actual fact, it was it was just that the road faced directly into the setting. Uh, and, yeah. And drivers, because it was a brand new uh, dual carriageway, drivers would drive very, very fast uh, and then come around a bend and be confronted by the, you know, the sun right. um, and crash. <laughs> and then, not wanting to appear to be idiots, uh, they all fell in line. I mean, many of them fell in line with the local. Oh, it wasn't me. I was driving at you know within the speed limit, constable, and uh, minding my own business. When all of a sudden, this great figure jumped out in front of me and forced me to crash. You know, things have a habit of set. We do like a good. We like to blame something else, don't we? You know, we we were nodding off at the steering wheel, listening to um, the radio. Mm-hmm. It wasn't our fault, Constable. My insu- please yeah. don't put it on my insurance. Well, the Constable says we have to end the show because oh, well, there we are. Playing. Yeah. So anyways, uh, we want to thank everyone for listening. I'm and, bearing with uh, the first five minutes. Yeah, whatever. And I thought you did, you did fine. You always do fine. And I want to wish you, my friend, a happy birthday. Uh, 20, 29 years old, is it? Uh, a little bit older. A little bit, a little bit. So till next time, uh, good night. God bless everyone. Good night, God bless. to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us good Lord.